right, good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing? Hey, Steve. Thanks. <laughs> Steve's like the, the little kid waving at their parents on stage. He's like, look at me. You remember me? Yeah. So thanks for that, Steve. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, like, uh, like Wayne said, it's the Sunday between Christmas and New Year's. Uh, and Cale always referred to that Sunday as the National Youth Pastor Preaches the Sermon Sunday because it's the Sunday that most everybody else wants off. Um, but you guys know I'm not the youth pastor. I'm, I'm the intern. So I get to preach the National Youth Pastor Preaches the Sermon Sunday. Um, so I'm sorry if you came here expecting Josh, but he'll be up next week. And so I'm sure we can all look forward to that. Uh, but even though this is the weekend everybody wants off, I count it a privilege to be up here. I'm excited to, to be able to share with you guys this morning. Um, and so not only is today the Sunday between Christmas and New Year's, it's the last Sunday of 2020, which might just be the weirdest year uh, that most of us have ever lived through. A lot of things in our daily life have changed this year, and I know a lot of those changes have been unsettling for a lot of people, myself, myself included. Uh, and I get it, you know, the world changes. More often than not, it, things are changing. The world changed before 2020, and the, the world will keep changing after uh, 2020. But so much has changed this year, it's actually mind-boggling to, to sit down and try to even picture what life was like just a year ago. And I was going to list out some ways that daily life has changed this year, and I was going to spare my personal feelings on those issues. Uh, I was going to spare you from those. But while I was making my list, I realized that even simply saying a list of the things that have changed uh, was impossible for me to do without expressing my distaste uh, for some of those things. And if, if you know me well enough, that, that doesn't surprise you. So I'm not going to do it. I'm not even going to bother. But, but I don't think I have to. Um, I don't think I have to make a list of changes because daily life has just changed so much for so many people this year. And uh, I would be really surprised if you came up to me afterwards and said, my life hasn't changed at all. Nothing. No, no new concerns have happened this year. Um, so if that's you, I want to meet you because you're an enigma. Um, so uh, please feel free to let me know. But the rules of daily life keep changing. The goalposts that society tries to set for us, uh, they just keep moving. But my point is a lot of things in our world have changed this year. And that raises questions on how things are going to continue to change in the future. Are things going to get back to normal this year? Are things going to get worse next year? We really can't say for sure. I have my thoughts and opinions, but so does everybody else. So, so my thoughts and opinions are just that. But regardless of whether that change in the future is good or bad, I think the thing we can count on is that things are going to continue to change. And that can make life difficult. Because if we don't know what the future holds, how can I live my life in a way that will best prepare me for the future? And I worry that that's what we spend a little too much time thinking about sometimes, especially when things get weird or difficult. But while there are many things that do change and will continue to change, there are some things that never change. And that's, and that's what we're talking about this morning. That's the title of this message. And so if you haven't already, turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. Um, and I'll start reading in verse 1. I'll give you a second to turn there. So 1 John 3, 1 through 3 says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. 
And so packed in this passage are at least three things that are never going to change. Verse 1 speaks of what God has done for us, and that's never going to change. Verse 2 talks about what God is going to do for us, and that's never going to change either. And verse 3 gets at the fact that as a result, what we're to do until Christ comes back shouldn't change either. So as our world continues to change, it's important for us to keep in mind these things that will never change. Because you can use those things as an anchor to help keep you focused on what you need to be focused on while everything around you is shifting and changing. And hopefully as we end 2020 and move into 2021, uh, move into the great unknown, we, we can do so equipped with the understanding of what we should be focused on and with an understanding on how to stay on course in this ever-changing world. So let's pray and we'll dig into the study. God, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you together. Um, we just have so much to be thankful for. And yeah, it's been a weird year for us. Things keep changing and, and, and things get weird, but we know that you never change, Lord, and we thank you for that. We thank you that even though our world changes around us, that we can stay anchored to you. And we ask you that uh, as we look into specific, some specific ways that you keep us anchored this morning, we ask that you be the one who guides us and directs us to help us navigate the weird world that we live in uh, for your glory. Teach us this morning, Lord. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. So, like I said, there are three things that we're going to look at from this passage uh, that never change. And the first one is found in verse number one, and that's point number one, your association. So simply put, if you're saved, your association with God remains exactly the same as it was on the day of your salvation. In other words, the truth of what Jesus did for you hasn't changed, and it never will, praise God. And that's important for us to keep in mind. It's important for us to remember, because throughout life, your association with many different people and many different things will just change naturally. Uh, people change employers all the time. People move to different locations, and as a result, their, their neighbors change, uh, their, their culture changes. Even in church, your associations change. For an example, you finish one-on-one -on -one discipleship, and you move on to MTT. So a regular part of your scheduled week stops, and a new one starts. Or you simply stop serving in one area of ministry, and you start serving in another. That will change your schedule. It'll change the people that you work with. It may even increase or decrease the level of involvement that's required of you. But the point is, things in life will change, and how you're associated with those things and with the people around you change. And 2020 is no different. In fact, if you pay attention, you'll probably notice your associations have, have changed a lot this year. People you would have frequently seen before, uh, before March, maybe you don't see them that much anymore. Work situations have changed. School situations have certainly changed. Many people that you would have said you typically see eye to eye on uh, with politics and life in general, maybe you don't really see eye to eye with them anymore. I mean, the way we even go to the grocery store has changed. You've got to look at the floor to know which way to walk. Uh, <laughs> all sorts of new concerns come into play. Maybe you're frustrated with the barrage of conflicting information coming from different news sources. Maybe you have family members who are frustrated with you because of your choices or opinions. Maybe you even lost your job. Maybe you even lost a loved one. Associations in life change, and they change frequently. So some changes are good, and some are not so good, but, but changes happen. And this year, for me in particular, some of those changes have made it difficult to trust in some things I would have trusted before. And as, that, and as we're at the end of this very difficult year, it's important to remember that, that we have something to put our trust in. No matter where you get to in life, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection will always be the most important thing that has ever happened to you. And the associations that result from you accepting that gift will last forever, 
regardless of what circumstances the world will throw your way. So the first key association that verse 1 talks about is letter A, he has made us sons of God. And I think too often we take this for granted, or we forget what, what that really means, to be called a son of God. Well, let's refresh our memory. Because in scripture, the term sons of God is a term that's reserved for only a few beings. In the Old Testament, for example, the term sons of God refers to angelic beings. Job 1.6 says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the same thing happens again in Job 2, verse 1. The sons of God come to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan was with them. So you have these sons of God, these angelic beings, including Satan himself, presenting themselves themselves before the Lord. And in case there's any confusion about what's going on here, near the end of the book of Job, God asked Job in Job 38, 4 through 7, Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the foundations thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So these sons of God were singing and shouting for joy when God laid the foundations of the earth, before Adam was created at the beginning of Genesis. These are the same sons of God, by the way, that came to earth in Genesis 6 and took wives from the daughters of men and had offspring that were giants. So in the Old Testament, the sons of God were angelic beings, but they aren't the only beings that Scripture refers to as a son or sons of God. Luke 3 contains a genealogy of Christ that tracks all the way from Jesus back to Adam. We get to the end of the genealogy. It says in Luke 3.38, Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. So Adam is called the son of God. But, But what makes Adam so special? Why does he get to be a son of God? Well, obviously he was the first human. But keep in mind how he was created. Genesis 2-7 says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So Adam was formed from the dust of the ground. He wasn't born by normal means like you or I were. God didn't form me from the dust of the ground, so by creation, I can't be a son of God. But also keep in mind that when Adam was created, he was created in the image of God. Genesis 1-27 says, So God created man in his image, In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. But we know that image wasn't passed on to Adam's children, presumably because of the fall that resulted from Adam and Eve's sin. We know that because Adam and Eve still had a child in Genesis 5, uh, and I'll just read the first three verses. It says, this is the book of the generations of Adam in the day that God created man. In the likeness of God made he him, male and female created he them, and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day that when they were created. And Adam lived in 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. So because Adam lost the image of God, he couldn't pass it on to his children. So none of Adam's children are ever referred to as sons of God. They weren't born in the image of God. And because we all descend from Adam, we can't be sons of God by birth because we aren't born with the image of God either. So Adam's unique because of the way he was created He's called a son of God. And, and the other one is obvious, but Jesus is also referred to as a son of God. Uh, in fact, Jesus is even more unique. He's uniquer. Uh, you might say he's the, the uniquest of all the sons of God um, because he is the only begotten son of God. Most of us know John 3.16 by heart. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son 
that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Some Bible versions will remove the term begotten from this verse. They might even say that Jesus is the one and only Son of God. But we've already seen that's just not true. Uh, There are other sons of God, but Jesus is the only begotten Son of God because he's the only one that came directly from God. He wasn't created like Adam or the angels. Uh, Hebrews 1, uh, 5 through 8 gets at some of the differences between Jesus and the angels. It says, For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my Son, with a capital S, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels he saith, who maketh his angels spirits, and his ministers a flame of fire? But unto the Son he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scripture of thy kingdom. So, sure, the angels are the sons of God, but they're not begotten by God. So Jesus is clearly a step or two above the angels because he is God. Jesus is God the Son. He's part of the Trinity. And that's what being begotten by God is referring to. He came from God. And part of the Trinity came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what we just celebrated at Christmas. Praise the Lord for that. So as far as the sons of God go, you've got Jesus, you've got Adam, and you've got the angels. It's a pretty exclusive group. Now, God does refer to Israel collectively as his son in Exodus 4.22, but the Israelites are never called sons of God individually. This makes sense because, you know, God said he was going to make that nation from Abraham in Genesis 12, but metaphorically referring to Israel as a son of God is, is not the same thing as an individual person being a son of God. So as far as the individual sons of God go, you've got the capital S, son of God, Jesus. You've got the little s, son of God, Adam. And you've got the little s, sons of God, angels. But then in the New Testament, you've got us, New Testament born-again believers. John 1, 12 through 13 says, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So on that very short list of individuals who get to be called the Son of God, if you've received him, you get to add yourself to that list. And that's a pretty cool thing because we can only become the sons of God if we receive him. And that's only possible because 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So when you receive Christ, when you choose to be in him, he makes you a new creature. And even though you don't physically change at salvation, you know, unfortunately, we don't automatically become beautiful and lose the excess weight we're carrying. But spiritually, you become a new creature. So when you get saved, that very exclusive term, son of God, gets applied to you. Don't miss that. You, me, of all people, we get to be sons of God. And that's why 1 John 3, 1 starts out with, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, if the fact that you, don't, or that you get to be a son of God doesn't blow your mind, you better check to make sure your fuse ain't wet. Because God offers you a choice to receive him. He effectively offers you a choice of whether or not you want to become a son of God, a title that's only reserved for a few beings in creation. And that's what makes us so different from the world and from the rest of creation. That's why verse 1 goes on uh, with therefore, because by making us his sons, automatically, letter B, he has separated us from the world. And that makes sense, because being sons of God makes us distinct from the rest of humanity. It makes us different. 
So because the world doesn't know him, it doesn't really know us anymore either. It used to know us, though, because we used to be of the world. Ephesians 2.2 says that we used to walk according to the course of this world. And Ephesians 2.12 says that when we were without Christ, we were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And Ephesians 2.19 says that we used to be strangers and foreigners, but now we're fellow citizens. We're of the household of God. So we used to be of the world, but once we become sons of God, we're separated from that world. We're not part of it anymore, even though we still have to live in it. Hebrews 11.13 uh, says, These all died in faith, having not, received, or having, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. So people who live by faith should feel like strangers and pilgrims on the earth. So if we want to live by faith in accordance with the reality that God has separated us from the world, we ought to feel like strangers and pilgrims as well. 1 Peter 2 tells us how in 11, verses 11 and 12. It says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. So being separated from the world should result in us living differently from the world. So we shouldn't be surprised when we feel out of place in this world. Anybody feel out of place in society this year? I know I have, but that's not a bad thing. I know it feels weird, but sometimes we should expect that because of what Christ has done for us in making us sons of God. We are different from the world. James 4.4 says that friendship of the world is enmity with God, meaning the world is the enemy of God. So we shouldn't be surprised when we try to live godly and the world doesn't like it. Because John 7, 7 tells us that the world as a system hates Jesus Christ. And because of that hate, there's always going to be a wall between us and between the world. 1 John 4, 5 and 6 say, They are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. Verse 6, But we are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So this separation from the world is going to result in a very real block in communication that can prevent the world from hearing what we have to say. So have you ever just looked at something going on in the world and end up just not understanding how people think the way they think? Social media makes this problem way worse, but it's difficult for us to comprehend the way the world thinks sometimes. Or do you just wonder how things could have possibly gotten the way they are? That's a question I ask myself all the time. How has everything gotten to this point? Well, that's, that's to be expected. That's why we're told that we shouldn't be about the things of this world. 1 John 2, 15 and 16 say, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. The things of this world, they're our enemies. That's why God has separated us from the world, to protect us from being affected by it or to at least minimize the effect that it can have on us to move us, his former enemies, away from his current enemies. And that's why we should expect to be hated by the world. Jesus spoke of his disciples in John 17, 14. He said, I have given them thy word, and the world hath, hateth them, uh, hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So in reality, we as Christians, we've been made separated from the world because God has turned us into his sons. 
but we should be living like it. Our lives should be noticeably different from the world around us. John 1, 9 through 10 tells us that Jesus came into the world as a light, but the world knew him not. And the world in general didn't recognize Jesus as the Savior and the King that he was. And because the world is the enemy of God, the world is going to remain a very dark place until he fixes it because Jesus is the light. But until he does fix it, we're supposed to shine as lights in this dark world. Philippians 2.15 says that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Because we've been separated from the world for a purpose, because we're supposed to do what verse 16 says, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. So yeah, God has separated us from the world, but that doesn't mean we get to hide from the world. We should be shining as lights, which means people should notice us, which means that the separation should be evident to everyone so that we can share the light of Christ with the few people in the world who want to receive it. Because we're the sons of God, he's given us that light to share. And that fact doesn't change just because our world gets a little weird. That's the association that can never change. You're God's son now, and you can never stop being his son. So you've got some light to share with the world that you've been separated from. And in light of that, we need to keep in mind that our transformation into sons of God isn't quite complete just yet. Because verse 2 goes on to say, Now we are the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. So even though we are the sons of God, there's still more to come with this transformation. And that's point number two, your assurance. So along with the fact that Jesus has forever changed us by making us sons of God, we also have some promises of things to come that aren't going to change. So just like the truth of what Jesus did for you in the past doesn't change, the truth of what Jesus is going to do for you, uh, that doesn't change either. The Bible points to some specific things that we can expect from Christ in the future, and we can have assurance in those promises. Remember, Paul talks about Christ in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 13 and 14. It says, In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of his glory. So yes, God saved us, and the Holy Spirit sealed us at salvation. That lasts forever. That's what we talked about in point one. But that's just the earnest of our inheritance. That's like a down payment. It's just the first part of what God promised to us. The entire purchase hasn't been redeemed yet. And don't forget that you're part of that purchase possession. 1 Corinthians 6.19 tells us that we were bought with a price. And God has spiritually redeemed you already, if you're saved, but he hasn't physically redeemed you yet. And that's the part we're still waiting on. Romans 8.19 says, For the earnest expectation, there's that word again, of the, the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. So even though we're already sons of God, 1 John you know, 3.2 starts with, Now we are the sons of God. We're still waiting uh, for that fact to fully manifest itself. That's why it goes on to say, It doth not yet appear what we shall be. And specifically, we're waiting on the redemption of our bodies, like Romans 8.23 mentions. And that makes sense if you think about the three parts of man, the body, the soul, and the spirit. Our soul is redeemed and freed from sin. 
And that happens at the moment of your salvation. Also at the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit starts living inside of you. So there's the soul and spirit. But our body, that's the one thing that hasn't changed yet. And we're still waiting on the redemption of our bodies. But that won't always be the case because there's coming a day when letter A, he will return for us. And that's the, the when he shall appear part in 1 John 3, 2. So the question is, when will he appear? That's a good question to ask because 2 Timothy 4, 8 says that we should love his appearing. It's something that we should be looking forward to. Most of us probably know exactly where this is going. We're talking about the rapture of the church, the event that Paul doesn't want you to be ignorant of in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says in verse 15, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. Verse 16, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then verse 17, Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. This is the event we're waiting for. The moment when Jesus Christ will return for us and we'll get to meet him face to face. What a wonderful day that will be. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Praise God. This is something I look forward to more and more as our world gets weirder and weirder. But the rapture isn't just a cool event that's going to take place. The rapture is when Christ is going to finish his work in us. Philippians 1.6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So when the day of Jesus Christ gets here, he'll be done performing that work in you. So that's when we're going to be changed forever. 1 Corinthians 15 uh, gets at this a lot. I'll I'll just read in verses 51 and 52. Uh, It says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. So the rapture isn't just us disappearing and appearing in Jesus' presence. It's going to change us. Colossians 3, 4 says, When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. So we know that Christ's appearing is linked to us appearing in glory. So whatever this change is, it's clearly a good thing because we'll be appearing with him in glory. So what does that look like? What is that change going to be? What will Christ do to finish his work in us? What does it mean to appear with him in glory? You guys are asking great questions this morning. But the, the long and short of it is letter B, he will make us like him. And after I wrote that down, I realized, like, I'm not trying to say that he'll force you to like him. Like, he's not like, now you have to like me. No, we should already, we should already like him. Um, hopefully the kids in Sunday school know that. But no, this is, this is what verse 2 is saying with when he shall appear, we shall be like him. Philippians 3 puts it this way in verses 20 and 21. For our conversation is in heaven from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. So our vile body, the ones we're wearing right now, he's going to fashion those to be like his glorious body. We're getting new bodies. The final step in our salvation is the redemption of our bodies, and what results is us having bodies that are like his glorious body. Praise the Lord. 
This is what we're predestinated for because of our choice to follow Christ. He's promised to conform us to the image of Christ. Romans 8.29 says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So if you're saved, if you're in Christ, this is going to happen. Nothing you can do about it. This is part of your salvation that just hasn't happened yet. Your soul and spirit were fixed the moment you gave your life to the Lord, but your body won't be fixed until Jesus comes back. But that doesn't make it any less sure, because God said it's going to happen. This is our own personal resurrection at the rapture. It'll replace your flesh with a glorified body, and our transformation into the sons of God will be 100% complete. The sons of God will be fully manifested. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 gets into details about this change. I'll start reading in verse 39. It says, All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is the other, is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for one star differeth from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last, Adam, Jesus, was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit, that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward, that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy, and as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Praise God, man. He alone has the power over sin and death, and this final part of our salvation will overcome both sin and death for each of us. We will bear the image of Christ, and our body will be like his. And we know that our new body will be fashioned like his glorious body. So what is his glorious body? Well, I think it's a safe assumption that Christ's glorious body is his resurrected body after he died and rose again. And if that's true, we can look at different places in Scripture to see what his resurrected body was like to learn what our glorified bodies will be, look, or will be like. And this is a fun study. So here we go. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty three says that our new body will be incorruptible and immortal. So no more sickness, no more death. Ain't no pandemic going to touch that body. But if you look at Jesus' body, Luke 24, verses 30 and 31 tell us that Jesus vanished out of his disciples' sight, which tells me one of two things. Either he can teleport or he can turn invisible or both. So there you go. John 20, uh, 17 and 19 indicate that Jesus traveled from earth to heaven and back in less than one day. I don't know how to get to heaven from here, but I know you've got to go through outer space to do it. So clearly he could travel very large distances very quickly. John 20 also says, uh, verses 19 and 26 point out that he entered rooms while the doors were shut. So, seems like he can travel through solid objects. But Thomas touched him, and doubting Thomas touched him in John 20, 27. So we know that Jesus' body was still a physically solid body. So he wasn't just a ghost that could go through walls, but somehow he made it into that room uh, while the doors were shut. So all the stuff that we tend to see only in movies and comic books, 
with superheroes that can fly really fast or pass through solid objects or have bullets bouncing off of them. All of the stuff that mankind and science have been striving to achieve for centuries. Jesus is the answer to all that. And we have the assurance that he'll do that for us. That he'll finish the work he started and we'll get a new body that's like his. And perhaps the best thing about this new body, aside from all the cool sci-fi sounding stuff, the best thing is that we'll no longer have to deal with our old sinful flesh. And that's critical because right now if you're saved, you have two natures warring inside of you. Paul wrote about this in Romans 7, uh, verses 18 through 25 uh, in particular. Because we all have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, trying to get us to serve the Lord. But we also have our sinful flesh, trying to get us to serve it and our own fleshly desires. So every decision you ever make is met with conflict between those two natures. And you have to decide, am I going to go with God and serve the Lord, or am I going to go with me and serve the flesh? We have to consider, and we consider our walk successful if we submit to God on any one decision and deny our flesh the control over us that it wants. Praise the Lord when that happens. But that only lasts until the next decision, and that's a daily struggle for a New Testament Christian. But our personal resurrection, our new body, will put an end to that struggle. So when Paul asks the rhetorical question in Romans 7, verse 24, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? We know the answer. Jesus will. And that's a daily struggle that we have to endure in this life. But our personal resurrection, our new body, it'll put an end to that. So when Paul asks, I'm sorry, I just jumped back in my notes. And that's important because we want to be able to see him as he is, like the end of 1 John 3, 2 says. Because right now, we can't see him as he is in our flesh because of God's holiness. Uh, there are some stories in the Bible where people try to see him as he is, and, and they all kind of have a similar theme. Remember the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, when Peter, James, and John saw Jesus transfigured before them? All they saw was a blinding light. Matthew 17, verse 2 says, His face shined as the sun. Verse 5 says, A bright cloud overshadowed them. And verse 6, When they saw that, they were sore afraid and fell on their faces. They were terrified. And there's a similar event with Paul on the road to Damascus uh, when he meets Jesus in Acts 9. The light from Jesus when Paul met him was so bright that Paul was blinded for three days. He was without sight. And when Moses came down off the mountain in Exodus 34, after he had been speaking with God, the light with God was apparently so bright that it left Moses' face glowing, glowing enough to freak everyone else out. But when we get glorified bodies, we won't have to be blinded when we see Jesus. We'll finally be able to see the Lord as he is. And that's something to look forward to. That's something to hope for. And that's something to keep in mind when the events of this world get a little weird and a little crazy. Because Jesus has promised to finish the work he started with you doesn't change just because the circumstances of this world change. And in 1 John 3, 3 gets into what we should do because of that. Because we have this hope, because we know that Jesus will one day return for us and give us glorified bodies, that's, or the way we should live our life should be affected by that. And that's point number three, your assignment. And this last point is simple, so don't miss it. The events of this world and the times we live in are constantly changing and will continue to change, but they, and they tend to not change for the better. The changes tend to make things worse, at least for us. But to, despite that, because what Jesus has already done for you doesn't change, and because what Jesus promises to do for you doesn't change, the things that you should be doing in the meantime, they also haven't changed. That's why 1 John 3.3 3 says, And every man that hath this hope in him 
purifieth himself, even as he is pure. So first, ask yourself, do you have this hope in you? Because that's the only people this verse applies to. 1 Timothy 1.1 tells us that Jesus Christ is our hope. So, do you have this hope in you? Romans 8.24-25 through 25 tells us that we are saved by hope. So, do you have this hope in you? Titus 2.13-14 and 14 says that we're looking for that blessed hope and that glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. So do you have this hope? Because if you have this hope in you, Philippians 3.20 says you'll be looking for the Savior to return from heaven. 1 Thessalonians 4.18 tells us we should be able to comfort one another with these words when we talk about the rapture. So is his appearing something you look forward to? When you see weird things going on in the world, is your first reaction to stop and pray and ask God that he, that he sends Jesus back soon? The knowledge and assurance of Christ's return ought to be a comforting thought, and it should bring us peace of mind when we stop to think about it. So do you have this hope in you? And if you don't, why not? Do you not have a relationship with Christ? Have you not started your walk with him that puts you on a path to future glorification? Because if you haven't done that, then you can't really take comfort in this discussion because it doesn't apply to you yet. But you can take comfort in the fact that starting your relationship with Christ is easy. Like Jeff talked about last week, uh, Jesus Christ has already done the work. He came to earth as a man. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. And then he rose from the grave with power over death. He did all of that to offer you the gift of eternal life. But you only get that gift if you accept it and take it from him. Romans 10, 9, and 10 tells us that the only things you have to do to get that gift are confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. It's that easy. It's that simple. All you have to do is take the gift of eternal life that he's offering to you. And if you have questions about that, man, don't leave this building until you get those questions answered. But if you do have a relationship with Christ and you're still not looking forward to his return, you got to ask yourself why. Maybe you've just gotten so wrapped up in the things of this world. Maybe you've just gotten too comfortable in your life here on earth to concern yourself with life in heaven. On the flip side, maybe you're so concerned and frustrated with the changes in our world this year that you don't stop and think about the things that will never change. Maybe you're worried that your secret life of sin will finally catch up to you when you meet Jesus face to face. I really can't tell you why you personally aren't looking forward to meeting Christ face to face. That's something you and God have to work out. But you need to know that it shouldn't be the case. You should be looking forward to the rapture. Because talking about what we talked about this morning should be met with hope. It should be met with excitement. It should be met with a longing that we just want it to happen right now. We should be so uncomfortable living as strangers and pilgrims in this corrupt and ugly world system that we can't wait to get out of here. We should be so, uh, that's the hope that we, that we have in us. And as a result of that hope in us, we need to get to work. That's why 1 John 3, 3 says and every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. So we need to get busy purifying ourselves. And you look up that word purify, you get an idea of, of how to do that. So how do we do that? Again, great questions this morning. John, James 4, 8 says, Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. So drawing nigh to God, getting close to him, is key. So are you drawing nigh to God? Are you spending time in his word every day? Are you 
on your knees in prayer before him on a daily basis, asking him to continue changing your life? Are you doing that? 1 Peter 1.22 says, Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. So your purity will be the result of obeying the truth through the Spirit, simply doing what the Bible instructs you to do and loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. Are you doing that? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 31 that he died daily. And by that, he meant that every day he made an effort to allow the Holy Spirit to guide him rather than his flesh. He sacrificed his own life for the sake of serving the Lord every single day. Are you doing that? 1 John 2, 28 and 29 says, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If ye know that he is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. So are you living your life in such a way that allows you to have confidence that when Jesus shows up, you won't be ashamed in front of him? Are you busy living your, or trying to live your life righteously the way the Bible tells us to live? Or are you too busy being entangled with the affairs of this life like Paul warns us not to do in 2 Timothy 2.4? Look, I know these are hard questions, but do yourself a favor and ask them. You do yourself a disservice if you don't ask yourself these questions honestly. Because here's the deal. Eventually, we'll all be completely pure. Don't forget that the church is the bride of Christ and that bride is going to be pure when it's presented to him. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27 says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So no spots, no wrinkles, no blemishes, holy. God's church will be holy. That's why Paul took the Corinthian church's purity seriously. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, he said, For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And you can see how this plays out in the book of Revelation. In uh, chapter 19, verse 7, it says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made, hath made herself ready. And we know his wife is the church. Verse 8 goes on and says, And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. So as a whole, the church is going to be pure when Christ finally gets what he deserves. And as individuals, each member of the church is going to be pure because the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. So if you're saved, before that will happen, you will be conformed to the image of Christ. You will be pure. Romans 8.29 says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And yes, he is going to be the one that completes that process and conforms us to his image. None of us are going to achieve that on our own, in our flesh. If we could, Jesus wouldn't have had to die for our sins. But the way I see it, the more we submit to his leadership in this life, the more we can conform to his image now. And the more we can or he can conform us to his image now, the less drastic that change is going to have to be when we meet him face to face. And the more conformed we are now, the more he can use us to reach the world with the gospel so the people in your life can get in on being sons of God too. And you won't have to be ashamed at his coming because you don't want that. You don't want to be ashamed at his coming. It's like the, the kid who, who gets to stay home alone for the first time and Mom and dad say, okay, when we get back, we expect your room to be clean. 
and they get back in his room's not clean. Like, you don't want to be that kid. That, that's the kid that gets grounded and doesn't get to stay home by themselves anymore. <laughs> so right now, we purify ourselves, even as he is pure. And this is an interesting statement to end this study on. 1 John 3.3 3 ends with a grammatically ambiguous he. In writing, especially in scripture, it's important to understand what pronouns like he are referring to. And I'm saying this is grammatically ambiguous because he could be referring to one of two things, and neither one of those things would result in a doctrinally incorrect understanding of the passage. On one hand, he can obviously refer to Jesus, so the, the understanding would be every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as Jesus is pure. Because Jesus is obviously pure. First Peter 1, 15 through 16 say, but as he which hath called you holy, or I'm sorry, but he but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. So Jesus is holy, so we ought to strive to be holy and pure just like he is, because the goal is to be conformed to his image. And on the other hand, the he could also refer back to the every man that hath this hope in him, the saved guy who's trying to purify himself. And that might sound strange, because why would someone who's pure have to work at purifying himself. Well, Colossians chapter 2 might help clear that up a little bit. Colossians 2 verses 10 through 14 say, And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. So even though we still live in our flesh and struggle with sin on a daily basis, God has already freed us from the bondage of sin. Everything that co in that Colossians 2 passage is present tense. He has separated our flesh from our soul in a way that will prevent our flesh's sin from ever touching our soul. So on the inside, anyone with the Holy Spirit living inside of them is pure already. It's just the outside part that has yet to be dealt with. So the understanding here is that we already know God has made us pure in an eternal sense on the inside. So we ought to strive to be holy and pure on the outside too, in the here and now so that the outside matches what God has already done on the inside, so when the world sees the outside, they can see what Jesus did on the inside. If you don't do that, how do you plan to show lost people what God has done for you? Because otherwise you're just talking, and there's a lot of people talking in our world, and not everybody wants to hear somebody just talking, but if they see change in your life, then man, they can know that Jesus changed your life. And I love sentences in scripture like this, by the way. A sentence that could mean two things and be right either way. It's a fantastic book we have. But regardless of which way the sentence reads, the takeaway is exactly the same. If you have the hope of Jesus Christ inside of you, you should be busy purifying yourself, regardless of the circumstances of life around you. Because the fact, uh, I pray that we would, you would, I just pray that you'd allow us uh, to, to make you the one who guides us and directs us in our, in our life and in this ever-changing world. We want to start 2021 off right, glorifying you with everything that we do. In your name, Lord, we love you. Amen.